0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do.
1: Hello. G'day, how are you? I'm <laughs>
0: good. See, I'm feeling a bit stretched. I'm just off a plane. What about oh, you? Hello. yeah,
1: you poor mugger. I feel like it's the
0: week before Christmas. It does feel a lot like the week yeah. before Christmas, doesn't it? It's funny, you know, the last two days for me have actually been deep inside the business. So they haven't been as much doing workplace law but looking mm. inside our business mm. and, and doing mentoring which is just the loveliest place to be mm. can I just say that you know sitting listening to people who work for you doing good stuff and then working out how you can help leverage it and improve it there mm. isn't a better job in the world than doing it so sometimes my job's really magical there's other times when the black hat's on it's not quite so flat. Yeah. <laughs> but the other part is where my skill set's my better skill is in workplace, and I've been chasing my tail trying to get work done, and I really mm. miss doing that. So it's odd, isn't it? But the really good news is
1: Need there is, back. Back.
0: <laughs> and we've got Paul starting with us very soon. Starting yeah, on Monday, yeah, Sorry, which we'll is super exciting. So it's yeah, you'll get to meet Paul in due course. Mm. Let's just jump straight into Facebook because I, I think the the first case that we're going to talk about today is Facebook is a place which you're not normally you can be prevented from going. Okay. So if we look at the early cases on Facebook, privacy law prevents you from going and looking at it, unless to go and look at it is a way to ascertain evidence that would otherwise be not denied if you put the person on notice that you're looking at it. Okay. okay? So that's a bit of old law that just sits in the background. So this is a sort of fascinating case of a rubbish truck operator they yeah. did himself an injury. Tell us more of the facts, but the funny part is the Facebook post. Okay. Yeah, okay. Anyway, off you, you go with
1: so, it. So facts are he just at work stood on broken glass one day and the glass penetrated his, the sole of his foot. Yep. He needed some surgeries. He ended up putting in an impairment, benefit successful work cover claim, obviously, but part of that was an impairment benefit application. So he goes off to see the doctor, but he's claiming an impairment. And that's
0: a percentage payment, like a capital payment for loss of use, isn't it? Yeah. Permanent loss of use. Yeah, yeah.
1: whole person impairment. And he claimed his whole person impairment was 11%. So he would be qualified over the cap, which in South Australia, very low, it's only 5%. Anyway, but he was claiming a restriction of ankle movement rather than scarring more so on the sole of his foot. And the employer said, well, hang on, you've hurt the bottom of your foot. How is that relevant? But also in the year between the injury and seeing the doctor for the whole person impairment assessment, he's put on Facebook that he's been playing hockey. (laughs) And, of course, you've got to have a lot of good angles to be able to play hockey. And the IME had said to him, what are your sporting activities? And he says, oh, no, I don't do anything. And so he said in his defence, oh, but he asked me what I was doing right then. He didn't ask me what I had been doing 12 months ago. Anyway, so the long and the short of it was that the tribunal found that the IME report could not be relied upon because he didn't have reliable evidence from the employee. Yeah. So, a very important lesson for employers is to make sure that if if they are sending anyone off to a doctor, they inform the doctor of the relevant background and never rely upon the worker to do so yeah. because they won't always. But
0: it's trained. just such an important lesson. Isn't it? Mm. And the 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 part is, we all know our red flag employees. Mm. At that stage, dig deep. You know, when you've got a red flag employee, dig a bit deeper. Yeah. Don't just rely on the physical observations that you're making for the moment in time that Mm. you're doing it, Mm. make a few inquiries, dig around, find out some things. Often there's nothing. Mm. Sometimes there's gossip which you can't use, but sometimes there's hard evidence Mm. just looking you in the face. At that stage, as I said, the case law around Facebook or social media is this may have had no privacy settings so may have been able to be used, Mm. okay? Mm. But if it did have privacy settings and the disclosure would lead to the deletion of it, then you're allowed to go and look at it, you're allowed to download it, yeah. and you're allowed to have it as evidence. So I think a really important case, and it just shows that some diligence here mm. came up with a good result. Yeah. I think the next case is a case that you and I have fought for most of our life in work, yeah. which talked about during COVID, We set people up at home with two screens, mm. proper desks, proper chairs, and a number of our competitors said, oh, that can't be your obligation. Mm. And of course, it's dumb yes. not to do it because yeah. obviously you want people to be productive. So, couch surfing with a laptop's not a great idea yeah. as far as I'm concerned. But um, Horman's a great case, isn't it? It is.
1: So, we have a university tutor who was working from home and he'd had an interesting, well, relatively, relevantly, he'd had a pre existing back injury from a met, motor vehicle accident, history of chronic fatigue, and he complained to the university, my home setup is not sufficient and it's causing an aggravation of my back pain, I'm gaining weight, it's having all these other enormous medical impacts on him, and they did nothing. And had they simply just gone around there, providing him with a decent ergonomic chair and set up, all of this could have been avoided. They
0: wouldn't have had an $11,000 mattress, would
1: they? $15,000 mattress.
0: <laughs> I want that mattress.
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> but all of this stuff, and it's all been supported by the court. You say, well, look, you created this situation, you have to fix it. So you can trial all these different ergonomic chairs, and you've got to pay for it, and you have to provide him with diet shakes and saline drips and all this. And none of it—can I just
0: say—none of it had to happen if they did an appropriate risk assessment yeah. at the time. Isn't it crazy? So exactly. look, you know, the lesson out of that. Can I just say, working from home and flexible works great. It does. A matter of safety law, workers' compensation law, discrimination law, and employment law require you to undertake a risk assessment and consultation. Yeah. I think Karen and I used to talk about this every week during you did. COVID yeah, you did. and yet still people aren't doing it. Yeah. So safe workplace
1: extends to their workplace.
0: Yeah, it does. Not just the physical workplace. Why don't we have a look now at something a little bit more interesting?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's a bit more interesting. I'm always
1: juicier facts.
0: The juicier facts but I'm always fascinated by people who do things right and people who don't do things mm. right. And when they don't do something right I always get angry about the outcome of it. Mm. And the AOG case, which I think, yeah, which is Shaman Jackson AOG, okay. is a case of somebody who followed through a perfect system, maybe not with the greatest heart and the greatest detail and the greatest speed, but came out on top of it. It's where a person mm. felt they were being sexually harassed, bullied. Felt she was forced to resign about it. AIG kept intervening and tried to do the right things, tried to find methods of resolution. Mm. She resigned and then said at the end of it, look, I've been wronged Mm. and brought a claim and failed because what the court said at the end of the day is, well, look, there was a process that existed. It was a proper process. They invested in that process correctly. They didn't want you to to resign. They did look at methods of getting around it and you chose to resign. That's it. That's the case. And can I say to you, there are better methods by which AOG could have done this, Mm. significantly better methods, but that's not the point. Mm. They had a legally compliant system. They had goodwill in their attempt to exercise it, and they repeatedly looked at methods to get around the issues that were occurring, and she chose to resign. I won't make comment about what I really think happened in all of this, (laughs) but my point about it is... Good systems following the systems and doing it with goodwill nearly always wins, Mm. and that's an example. And that can be juxtaposed (laughs) with our next (laughs) case, which is Chokji Thai restaurants, which is just a shocker.
1: It is. It's truthful.
0: I want to do this just in a really simple, I just want to cut to the chase. (laughs) This is a guy who raised bullying allegations. He was a chef. In doing so, counter-allegations were made against him.
1: Well, hang on. Can we get a bit more detail? Oh, no, you give the
0: detail. But that's that this just it's
1: a fun case. Openly gay chef made a complaint of bullying against his manager. The manager's de facto was the owner of the restaurant, and he thought, right, he's got to go. So within two weeks of the chef making the complaint about his manager, he was looking up, how can I get a rid, a rid of this guy? And he thought, ah, sexual harassment. So he put out a survey to
0: all the female employees and coerced them to respond. No, There's more detail. Okay. Sorry, so put out, <laughs> have you ever been bullied effectively to the yeah. question? But then we don't know this, but the commissioner couldn't help but draw a conclusion that the, the women who responded to it did write on a B does sexually harass us effectively, yeah. four of them did. But they are all people who were subject to visa risk, and it seemed so contrived.
1: Yeah, it was so contrived.
0: All I want to say about this, look, I looked at Kim and we just couldn't resist putting on yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth. Yeah. But the funny part about it is how often people come to us wanting to stitch someone up. Mm. They've reached the stage they, and they're often quite fair about it. They've yeah. gone, I just can't tolerate this anymore. And something small happens, which they're hypersensitive to. So they've inflated how bad it is and then they want to go, let's investigate and mm. go, no, you don't need to investigate. He acknowledges he did it. It's small. counselor no, 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 let's investigate. Do you want to spend all that money to do that? And what do you want? Well, he's got to go. Man, no. Yeah. So I think one of the things we often find is we de-escalate clients who come in who mm. are just sick and tired of a bad-performing, badly behaved person mm. and they choose the wrong matter to go after. Yeah. I don't know whether the chef was a good or bad chef. I don't know any of those things mm. in this case. But I, as I was reading it, I chuckled because I thought of the number of times that clients come to me and said, how can we just get rid of this person? Mm. Mm. And here's somebody who thought, he's a cunning plan. <laughs> and it just shows Definitely. how badly that goes. Mm. You've got to bring a clear mind, no matter how difficult the person is, to a disciplinary process. Okay. And you've got to step back and you've got to listen to other voices about well, really how serious is this. Mm. Anyway, that's, that's the reason I stuck at it. Yeah. That's good. good. I, okay. Intractable bargaining. Okay. Well, this is our first case. Now, remember, mm. under the old intractable bargaining, it was incredibly hard to get a decision. Very hard to get the Fair Work Commission to intervene. goes back to one of the old Boeing decisions, two to three years of industrial disputation, incredible losses suffered by the mm-hmm. business. And the Labor position on this as a government was driven by unions in part but also a pretty good decision that said, look, when people can't agree and everyone's made a good effort, someone's got to intervene quickly because yes. it causes loss to everybody. Mm-hmm. Employees aren't being paid okay, and we've just had a phone call, with was over, where the union pushed and stopped a very sensible bargaining going through and the truth is, well, the employees won't be paid and never do back pay.
1: Mm.
0: Not a good decision by the uh, the AWU to do that and that's going to go for a long time. Same here. Employees not going to be paid. In this case, which was the firefighters, there had to be government approval. They've been fighting for two or three years.
1: Three years, yeah. 76 meetings.
0: Yeah, crazy stuff. Mm. And the bottom line is... It was over. You couldn't get any further because what happens after you've been in a dispute for a period of time is no longer are people asking for money. The industrial position of a union starts to come in, and other issues, which actually employees didn't care about in the beginning, suddenly loom large. And at that stage, no employer can back down because they're now being asked to do things which are huge on cost to the basic cost of a business. So what the Fair Work Commission did is said, Yeah, I'm happy to make an order. Let's go and I'll make a decision about mm-hmm. what is fair. But in the meantime, there was an argument about, well, can we have a couple of weeks to see whether we can narrow it? Mm-hmm. The union said, no, well, I want to go and fight. <laughs> and the Fair Work Commission said, that's pretty dumb. Why don't I allow you two weeks to see if you can narrow the areas of dispute so I don't yeah. have to agitate the whole issue? So I think this is incredibly practical. I mm-hmm. think the improvements around intractable bargaining are really useful. Yeah. And I think we'll see lower thresholds where people go sooner, like the case I'm involved, which has been going for nine months. I think if it goes for another three or four months, we could easily come before the mm-hmm. Commission, get a really sensible result yeah. very, very quickly, and allow employers to get back and do their job, allow unions to do their job, but mm-hmm. not get caught in the politics of industrial war. Let's go on to the main topic, and I, I don't want to spend a lot of time. Closing the loop Is run into, quite rightly, some pushback, and it's run into pushback from the crossbenchers in Senate, who've said, look, this is a lot of change. Some of it seems quite good, but we haven't really had a chance to think about it. And one of the things that they were very concerned around is what closing the loop want to do with contractors, mm. you know, the definition of who is an employee and who is a contractor. And it's a, closing the loop does tidy up some things. We'll talk briefly about two or three. of The other things and Kim and Nina have spoken about in my absence some of the good things that I think are really being done. Mm. But the contractor one was done and it was driven again by the union movement saying, we don't like what the High Court said, we want to go back to the old days. So let's talk about what the High Court said. Mm. The High Court said, if I want to engage him as a contractor, I need to look at the intention of the parties at the time of entering into the contract, which is how you interpret all contracts, by the way, that's mm-hmm. contract law, yeah. and I will find that intention by what is written in a document and, therefore, unless the substantive behaviour afterwards varies in such a crazy way or there's some ambiguity, the contract will govern the relationship. Thank God. Okay? I think we
1: had good sense then.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, look, we we have been fighting about this constantly. I'd say probably 10 to 15 cases came before us every year Mm. where all of us would be trying to divine based under the substantive test theory, which is, so what is the behaviour like after contracting? Mm-hmm. Crazy thing to be talking about, isn't it? Shouldn't a person know where they are at the beginning? Not. We work it out six months later. Mm-hmm. But we'd sit there and we'd be weighing up all the aspects of it, you know, can you actually delegate work? Do you give a tax invoice? Is it based on how? All this sort of crazy stuff. And the truth was our group would say, yeah, look, 60% likely contractor, mm-hmm. but we can never give any clarity. High no. court said we're sick of that. But, of course, this is a place where the unions live. Mm. And so they've unwound it in closing the loop. And there are a number of people who are more independent who are sitting in Parliament who are saying, I just don't understand this. Why Mm. would we get rid of something that was so complex, so bad, interfered in business, interfered in labour? Why would we bring all that back for Mm. ward-based employees? So I think the short answer is you now know what the old position was, Mm. relatively new old position under the High Court, great idea, look at a party's intention before they enter into a contract. I think that's great, yeah. personally. Yeah. Go back to the old position of balancing all the factors between a contractor and employee, which is do they have an ABN, do they have an independent company, do they act for other people, do they have all that mm-hmm. sort of crazy rubbish that we used to try and wave, for which there is no academic way of identifying a weight you attach to each. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to go in front of a court based on the politics of who that person was appointed as to how they weigh it, why would we create such uncertainty in the way Mm. people work? So I think that's a sort of grotesque anomaly that sits Mm. right in the middle of closing a loop, and Mm. I hope that the crossbench push hard and long to stop that from occurring. Mm. The good things that are occurring which are looking at gig-based workers and setting minimum terms, I think that's a great thing. I think the look at the transport and saying we need to look at unfair terms and contracts for contractors and ra- I think they're a great thing mm. so those things hopefully will flood through and I don't think anyone has a legitimate basis for defending them um, mm. and if they do there's something wrong with them yeah. because you know I, I was working as a workplace lawyer when everyone used to own trucks and they were pushed out to individual individual mm. drivers I did just half the industrial action and sat around that for companies they were terrible times where mm. poor, but poor individuals got trucks thrust upon them later or suddenly took on $300,000 of debt, mm. they're making tiny margins. We forget the history in road transport mm. of the damage that's been done and we forget we've now got gig workers who are going down the same path, who are investing in small infrastructure in tiny mm. margins and being treated poorly and Australia is a better place than that. Mm. So it's nice to know that courts will interfere in the unfairness mm. of contracts contract set minimum terms. Again, I don't think there'll be a lot of pushback in that, but the contractor versus employee stuff we need to fight hard to stop that from occurring mm. because the law became much simpler for everybody around about nine or ten months ago yeah. and Labor, through the pressures of the union seek to rip it up. All right. Let's go on to the problem. And, Kim, right. you can read.
1: Okay. Jen had worked for Gary for several years. Jen was a young accountant and Gary was the CFO of Bank 2 for You or 2 yeah. for You?
0: 2 for You. 2
1: for You. <laughs> okay. Good. A lending business for the domestic housing market. There were several women in Gary's team. The board of Bank 2 for You were concerned with Gary's performance. He'd been with the bank since its first capital raise as a startup, and now it was listed on the stock exchange. He knew everything about the organisation, including where all the skeletons were buried. (laughs) He knew about and had raised concerns about the CEO's remuneration, how his incentive package did not align with profitability or recognise performance targets. There was a lack of governance around the issue and there were other executives who were inside the CEO tent. Both the CEO and Chair had been with the business for less than five years. Gary was very protective of the business because he helped guide it through difficult times. When he raised his concerns, he was told by the Chair of the Norms and Rems Committee that it was not his business. Shortly after Gary raised his concerns, the CEO raised concerns about Gary's performance and started to performance manage him. The PIP that the HR manager prepared was neither fair nor based on objective measures. Gary raised his concerns with HR and wrote directly to the CEO and chair, stating clearly why he was concerned and why it was unfair, hurtful and unreasonable. He said it made him feel bullied and unsafe at work. As Gary was leaving the building to head home on Friday the 6th of October, Jen came up to him and asked him if he was okay. He'd obviously been crying. They hugged and he said, I'm fine. She grabbed him by the hand and drew him into a nearby bar for a drink. The following day, all women in his area received a strictly confidential survey. It asked questions like, has Gary ever touched or hugged you? The hotel manager rang each woman and made it clear there would be very serious consequences if they told Gary or anyone else of the survey. Four women said that Gary had touched or hugged them. Had they been asked, they would have explained that he was a father figure in the office, and the touching or hugging was always consensual and often around traumatic things that had occurred in their life. Gary was hauled before HR, shown CCTV footage of him hugging Jen, and the results of the survey. HR explained they had a positive duty to stop sexual harassment, and as a result, he would be summarily dismissed. He earned over 500k a year before bonuses. All right.
0: Okay. Interesting story. So. <laughs> First one's not too hard. Did Gary sexually arrest Jen or anyone else? No, he did not. I know, but can I just say to you, mm. it tells you one thing, doesn't it? And that is, it's lovely that people did consent, mm. but I'm not sure Gary in this story would have known one way or the other.
1: Yeah, that's true. You should never. Well.
0: Yeah, so it's hard for Kim and I because when we don't see, <laughs> she's a hugger. I'm no, she's a hugger. I'm
1: sorry. Um, I asked permission. She does ask permission.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess the one thing to remember is. This story is deliberately designed to say that, that women like Jen hugged him mm. to so, show that the type of difference that can exist. But there does need to be a little bit of caution around this sort of behaviour yeah. within a workplace. I think for Kim and I and for people who have worked together for over 20 years, mm. we're close friends, so there is an established relationship that does it. Yeah. It's worth just reminding you, mm-hmm. was there a positive duty for Bank 2 for, for, for yes, you? Yes, there certainly was. So there's a
1: positive
0: duty under respect at work yeah. to your
1: black No, you can go. No, you can. You oh, you're,
0: it? you're dying to it. <laughs> no, 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 there is a, you know, there's so many positive duties. And yeah. There is a positive duty, or an emergent positive duty in Victoria and one that exists to prevent psychological hazards. So there's ones around sexual harassment, discrimination, and there is a positive obligation to prevent it from occurring as well. Mm-hmm. So there's two duties that sit there and making hostile work mm-hmm. environment. So, there is the positive duty, and then there is you must prohibit it as must be prohibited. Mm. So this is what it's saying to organizations like this bank is, what evidence do you have to satisfy yourself that behaviour like this will not happen? So it's not about responding to allegations or certainly coming back and collecting evidence later. Mm. It is about what is the living evidence in that organization that tells you about people, not sexually harassing, not discriminating, not having a hostile workforce, not having psychological hazards. Mm. That is evidence. It's not a matter of saying, oh well we've got this duty. Now we see this, we're going to sack you. That ain't anything but mistake. It's what does our exit interview say? What do our HR records tell us? You know, where is the discipline? Where's the op? have we done a survey and a survey which is a reasonable survey across everybody that asks, you know, do I feel safe when I come to work? Mm. Have you been the subject of any form of sexual harassment? Have I? Have you been bullied while you're at work? Mm. What are those type of questions that open ended to do? Well, they'll give you a really honest answer. That's the start. It's related to the person who you're you're surveying, so they'll tell you about them, not what they've observed about others. So mm. that question used to be, "Have you ever observed sexual harassment mm. in the workplace?" And 80 people would say yes, but it was all the same incident. Not helpful yeah. to you. So. When you've got that information and you've got the HR files, you've got the exit interviews, this is the very basic beginnings of it, then what you do is you go and hold some focus groups around the areas of risk to actually flesh out and enrich that detail. And from that, you can then build supervisor competence and have a proper HRM that collects supervisor feedback around behaviours and performance going through. But without evidence, you can't haven't you can't have completed your positive duty because Mm -hmm. your positive duty is not to deal with it when it happens it's to stop it from when it's happening so when the hr manager said because of our positive duty that's bullshit the Mm -hmm. positive duty was well before that and it's organization wide not individually located it's then to have a system that sits above it that deals immediately with behaviors that breach that remember with sexual harassment and bullying it's a bit like Shrek and the onion. There's a lot of layers. <laughs> so it always starts off in a small way, doesn't it, mm. which then grows very rapidly from that. So a strong process, a safe work environment, a place where people feel safe to to say something, means you get in before serious harm or hurt is done. Mm. Sexual harassment and bullying are form of psychological hazards. They're one of the sort of 14 that have been listed. They're the more agrariously wrong ones. Mm. But how we allocate work, risk and reward, all those types of issues around how we manage people, leadership issues, again, need to have an evidence base that we're regularly testing and checking on. Mm. This organisation didn't have it. It was clearly in breach of every single positive duty that existed yeah. under respective work and secure jobs and under the safety legislation. It, deeply was, it was deeply mm. flawed. Mm. So although it had policies and procedures, that's got nothing to do with the positive duty. Evidence has the positive duty. Mm. All right. Does Gary have a cause of action?
1: He has a brilliant cause of action in general protection,
0: doesn't he? He certainly does. Without any
1: doubt.
0: So what Gary's done is he's identified a workplace right. He's raised a problem that existed around behaviours that exist in the organisation. Mm -hmm. He's then had behaviour towards him which isn't based on fact. He's then said, this affects my safety. So he's ticked the box. He Mm -hmm. says, okay, this has affected my safety now. And as a result of that, they have moved to terminate. Mm. Okay, and so ultimately terminate. So when I say it's, or Kim says it's a good claim, it's not just a good claim. Remember, there is a reverse onus, it's an adverse mm. action. He raises what Kim has just said. He's ticked his obligation. Mm. At that stage, the company has to go back and disprove yeah. what I've just said. It can't. Mm. It can't say he didn't raise it. It can't do That's that. You can't say that the process they were implementing was a reasonable one. Mm-hmm. Gone, okay, because that's something that will be tested objectively based on the evidence that's given and on expert evidence and say, under no basis would this be reasonable. Mm. So in the court at the moment, you're into day three of a hearing, you've got a gun at your head. Mm. What's the loss? He's on $500,000. So he doesn't have an unfair dismissal claim, clearly. Mm. But at $500,000, the damage that's been done to this man is so significant. Mm. He's unlikely to work again. So his compensation is at least two to three years' worth of yeah. income, and any other losses around sort of medical and like expenses. Mm-hmm. This is a one to two million dollar minimum claim. Yeah. And how crazy this was a guy who actually was helping an organisation and who identified the Qantas problems that existed in mm-hmm. the organisation. You can tell I wrote this when Qantas actually pushed back much like that. I'm so kidding. <shitty. laughs> Well, yes, this is a good story to tell right at <laughs> this moment. I wonder if Ellen Joyce is listening. This is a good story to tell. But isn't it interesting how often we've seen situations where someone does act as a whistleblower in a way? This isn't quite a whistleblower, but is concerned about remuneration, about behaviors, and is then punished for it by the person they've raised about it. This shows where general protections is going. So, general protections is starting to line up with the harassment-type claims and the way damages are being measured and harassed, yeah. I think this would be one, if it was fought, would be massive mm. So there you go.
1: Yeah.
0: That's for this week. And it's great. Look, And next week we've got Nina Batkin. You're, you're free. I hope so.
1: Those butterflies. No, was just, was those just, butterflies. I was just okay.
0: thinking about our workload next week. I don't
1: know. We'll have to play that one by ear, I think. We've got a lot It
0: It can't be you because you're in Ballarat. Well, so
1: me, Nina
0: might be too. It's so me on my own again. Mm, might be. With Paul. Okay. Anyway, look, lovely to see you. Give us a thumbs up when you get a chance. Great to be on with you too. You
1: too, thanks Andrew. And we'll see
0: you soon. Bye.
1: Bye.